All right, so today we are going to begin our central nervous system. Before we can do the central nervous system, we need to talk about A and P of the system because I'm sure many of you have forgotten what a nervous system is. So, the nervous system is broken down into the central and the peripheral. The central consists of the brain and spinal cord. The peripheral is the cranial nerves plus spinal nerves. Things that go from the periphery of the body toward the central nervous system are called afferent pathways, and nerves that go from the central nervous system out toward the body are called efferent. Functionally, we're going to separate the peripheral nervous system into two parts that we call somatic and autonomic. The autonomic system will then further be broken down into sympathetic and parasympathetic. This should all sound very familiar. If it doesn't, you're in trouble, yes. All right. Now, uh, the nerve cells themselves. The neuron is the basic nerve cell. And then we also have some supporting cells. We have astrocytes, which do a bunch of different things. We have oligodendria which form myelin sheath in the central nervous system. Those same cells that perform that role in the peripheral are called Schwann cells. We have microglia, showing, we have microglia cells, which are in the central nervous system and are macrophages. So what's their job? To eat up stuff. What kind of stuff? There is no red blood cells in the central nervous system. Okay, so infections and also any potentially cancerous cells or necrose tissue. It's basically to just clean up, make sure everything is nice and clean. And then we have something called ependymal cells, which line the ventricles to form central um, cerebrospinal fluid. Now, does your brain have a blood supply? Yes, it does. But does the brain actually get nourished by blood directly? No. What's in between? The BBB. The blood-brain barrier. So what actually feeds and nourishes the brain? Cerebrospinal fluid. So your, your brain has its own circulatory system called the cerebral spinal fluid. And the ventricles are what, where that fluid is created. What are ventricles in the brain? Okay, they're pockets of fluid. So in the middle of your brain, yes, just like your parents told you, you're hollow. All right, here is a structure of a typical neuron. You have the cell body. You have these little guys which are called dendrites. And what live in the dendrites? Well, this whole thing is one cell. No, the nucleus lives in the cell body. What lives in the dendrites? Receptors. And what are those receptors used for? So it's used to give this cell, it's used for this cell to make a decision. What's that decision? To fire or not to fire. So cells that tell this, or receptors that would tell this cell not to fire would be called inhibitory, and ones that tell it 
go ahead, fire, would be called excitatory or stimulatory. Once this guy has made the decision to fire, the signal is going to start over here at the cell body and move all the way down the axon to the terminal. How do you know it's the terminal? Because the word terminar in Spanish means to end. And the word terminate means to end. So the end of the axon is the axon terminal or axon end. Okay, so the question was, what about this myelin sheath and these little nodes of I am not French, but I will pretend today. So, um, it takes a long time for this, for this action impulse to get from this end all the way to the other end. So how many of you have ever seen The Return of the King? The Return of the King. Okay, do you remember when they light the signal fire and it goes from mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop to... So what could have taken a long time if you had to ride a horse from one mountaintop to the next took only an hour because they were able to light those signal fires. Well, the nodes of Ranvier are like the signal fires. Instead of having to travel all the way, it's going to skip to each node of Ranvier. And that's what the myelin sheath does. The myelin sheath speeds up conduction. So if we have a disease where the myelin sheath is being destroyed, what's going to happen? That conduction is going to take a longer time and you're going to have disruption of the system. Imagine what would have happened if the message had never gotten to Rohan and the riders hadn't got there and the orcs destroyed everyone. I guess for next year I'll have to bring that movie in, huh? All right. Here's a picture of what the dendrites look like in real life. Pretty little guys, aren't they? Now, this... this um, cell, this neuron with its little dendrites, can synapse with up to 50,000 other neurons. All of them saying one of two things. What are those two things? Fire or don't fire. How many of you have issues with peer pressure? And how many friends do you have? Like four or five? Ten? Imagine if you had 50,000 friends all telling you jump or don't jump. Get a tattoo. Don't get a tattoo. So that's what's happening to this cell. It's being told, fire or don't fire. And it has to make the decision. It has to make the decision. So what's this little area at the end here? This is, we've got a little axon terminal. We have the next cell. What's this area called? A synapse. So here's the bigger version of our synapse. What are these little guys? Neurotransmitters. And those neurotransmitters will be released into this area, which is called the synaptic cleft or gap. And they will travel across. How do they travel? Diffusion. And what drives diffusion? Let me think about it. Concentration, yes. So concentration is going to make it diffuse across. And when it gets across, it is going to wonder twin powers, activate... Yeah, Joe, this is the only <laughs> you're the only one who remembers that one. 
right, one or twin powers activate the receptor. Now, if this receptor tells the next cell to fire, it's called excitatory. And if it tells it, hey man, don't fire, it's inhibitory. All right, that was beautiful. Um, there's a nice, you can't read it on here, but you can probably read it in your notes. A website, Pfizer.com slash brain slash dlgame.html. Um, I can't promise you how many questions will be on the test from that site, but I'm sure there'll be one. You can read it on the notes, but it's Pfizer. You should be able to. Okay, apparently I need to change the uh, font. That didn't work. All right, well, here. Now you can see it. Okay. Now, the dendrite receives the stimulus, initiates depolarization at the cell body, electrical impulses, jumps from the node to node, and at the end of the axon reaches the dendrite. You know I already knew that, right? Okay, good. Beep. Okay. Now, a single neuron may synapse with up to 50,000 other neurons. That's called peer pressure. Each one of those 50,000 neurons that's synapsing with it will secrete a neurotransmitter or neuropeptide. Same thing. There's hundreds of possible chemicals. Some of them will say go. Some of them will say don't. Some of them are stronger than others. Now, how many of you have a best friend? When your best friend says something, does that drown out what your other friends say? Like if all your friends are saying, hey, why don't we go here? And then your best friend says, no, let's go over there. It's like ditch your other, other friends for your best friend. <laughs> it doesn't always work that way, but sometimes. Well, it's the same thing. Some of these chemicals are stronger than others, and the cell will listen to them more than others. Now, the neuron has to decide, should I stay or should I go now? I mean, has to decide whether it should fire or not. Now, if our neuron gets cut, chopped, what will happen? Well, there will be no more signals, right? But can that neuron heal itself? Can it regenerate? Yes, within reason. So, for instance, you see that nice little scar right there? Well, right there is still a little bit numb. I can feel it, but it's not quite the same as it used to be. But it's gotten better over time. So, the moral of the story is don't cut frozen chicken. All right. Now, distal to, the in, distal to the injury, the axon will go away. It'll disintegrate. So, where I got cut, from there down, the, neuro, the neuron just got destroyed, eaten by inflammatory cells. The myelin sheath will then unwind back into Schwann cells, and they're going to line up along that pathway. Proximal to the, in, to the uh, injury, there will be disintegration to the next node of Ranvier. So, using our little picture here, uh, let's use this picture. So, let's say it gets cut right here. This part of the axon is going to go away altogether. This part 
is going to dissolve up until this next node. And then from there, that's where the healing will begin. So the cell body will begin to swell up. Then you're, it's going to begin to grow from the stump and grow outwards, just like a movie. Just like, um, just like the vampires in Blade. The original, of course. Um, and then they're going to grow through the Schwann cells, and then eventually they will heal. This, can be, this healing can be limited by scar tissue. So if your body has put scar tissue in the way, it can prevent that neuron from regenerating down. Quite possible. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of a lot of what we have as far as complications and where people don't heal fully is because scar tissue has grown, fibrotic tissue has grown where you should have normal tissue, and that prevents the normal tissue from regenerating. So, scar tissue is the limiting factor in neuron recovery or regeneration. All right, now let's talk about the brain. So the brain <coughs> separated into two parts, the outside part and the inside part. What's the outside part called sometimes? The cortex. And what does cortex mean? The rind. And does it have um, myelin or not? No, it does not have myelin. That's why it is called gray matter. The inside of the brain is called white matter because that's where the myelin lives. So in the brain, the cell bodies are on the outside. They're the ones who make the decisions. The inside part is myelin, so that's just transmitting those decisions to somewhere else. Now, for as complicated as your brain is, in the end, it only does two things. What are those two things? In the end, it makes muscles contract and glands secrete. And that's all it does. I mean, if you want to get down to, to it, you know, that's it. Makes your heart beat faster, makes your muscles contract, makes your eyes constrict, makes your mouth water, makes your stomach gurgle, makes you poo. But that's in the end, all it is is muscles contracting and glands secreting. Now, the... The cortex is separated into four lobes. And you have a lobe on the left side and a lobe on the right side. So the first part is we call the frontal lobe. The frontal lobe is responsible for Hmm. Looks like we have to have a quiz on this one. Yeah. Yeah, not today, but maybe tomorrow. That'd be wonderful. So so tomorrow we're going to have a quiz on the different parts of the brain. All you have to do is name it and put what it does. Such insight, such insight in one so young. The force is strong with you. Mm, the force is strong with this one. 
But you must search your feelings. Anger is the path to the dark side. All right. Now, Wernicke's area, you need to be familiar with these two areas, Wernicke's area and Broca's area. Wernicke's area is responsible for receptive communication. That's understanding what you've, what's being communicated to you. If that area is damaged, the patient will have receptive aphasia, which, in the immortal words of Adam Sandler, I see your mouth, I see your lips moving, but I can't hear the words. I've been abused in the ear. On the other hand, if Broca's area is damaged, the patient will know what they want to say, but they can't get it out, and that's called expressive aphasia. Now, what's interesting is that these areas are highly defined, and what you can have sometimes, you can have damage to just part of Broca's area, so you can't talk, but you can still write. Or you might be able to talk, but you can't write. So damage to these areas is very specific to what, what motor neurons get damaged. All right. After the cerebral cortex, we have what's called the basal ganglia. And these are responsible for motor function. So for those of you who are writing notes, you can thank your basal ganglia for this. What's a ganglia? It's not a group of neurons. It's a group of cell bodies. And what happens in the cell body? What happens in the cell body? Decisions are made. What decision? To fire or not to fire. Then we have the thalamus, which is kind of a relay station. It's, um, think of it as, as the uh, phone network operator. Below that, we have the hypothalamus. And you know that it's below that because hypo means below the thalamus. And the hypothalamus is responsible for a lot of our, we call vegetative functions, things that just keep you alive, like heart rate, blood pressure, sleep, and other things. The cerebellum is at the base of your, of your brain in the back, and that's responsible for motor coordination. So if you want to move your arm, let's say you want to flex your bicep and bring your arm to your shoulder. So everyone do that. What had to happen in order for you to do that? Okay, your bicep had to contract, but what else had to happen? Your tricep had to relax. So now what I want you to do is I want you to flex your tricep as hard as you can, and now bend your arm inwards. Can you do it? Why not? Okay, it doesn't work that way. You have to have relaxation of the opposing muscle. What's responsible for that is your cerebellum. So people who have cerebellar injuries will tend to have very jerky movements. Then below the cerebellum, we have the brain stem, which is separated into three parts, the midbrain, the pons, and the medulla. Um, the medulla is responsible ultimately for respiration, heart rate, GI function, and cranial nerves 8 through 12. Isn't that lovely? Now, surrounding the brain, we have three layers of membranes, hence the song, Insane in the Now, 
The dura mater, the dura mater means the tough matter. And it's two layers, actually. We have the periosteum and we have the inner dura. Now, periosteum actually means next to the osteum, and osteum means bone. So if we're talking, where is this located? Where is that layer located? Okay, so it's closest to the skull. Then on the inner layer, we have the inner dura, which is sometimes called the meningeal layer. Now, between these two spaces, between these two layers, we have the subdural space. So you've got the lining that covers the bone, then you have a little space. Between that, then you have the arachnoid membrane. The arachnoid membrane, what does arachnoid mean? Spider-like. So what do you think it looks like? Looks like a spider web. So this web is very fibrous and it's, um, it's going to follow the contours of the brain, but not the sulci. What's a sulcus? The fissures and grooves. So it's going to kind of cover the, bra the, the brain, but not too deep. And below that, we call that the subarachnoid space. Then finally, we have the pia mater. And this is very, very, very delicate. And it's going to actually follow the sulci and fissures. As far as the central um, cerebrospinal fluid goes, it's very similar to plasma. Now, what's in plasma? What's the number one thing in plasma? Okay, water. And besides water, what's the, no, the next thing? Nope. Not proteins. So it's an S. Okay. Who who was who was uh, who was Professor Campbell's little sidekick who wore blue hair? So sodium and chloride and glucose. So those are the major things that are in that blood or in, the, in that in the cerebral spinal fluid. Circulates in the ventricles and the subarachnoid spaces and there's approximately 125 to 150 milliliters at any given time. So there's not very much of it. What's its job? To nourish the brain. It, the brain will also float in this stuff so it's going to actually cushion the brain from Shocks. How many of you have ever had a um, waterbed? Yeah, they still do. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how many of you have ever tried to hit someone while you're in the water? <laughs> All the guys raise their head. Yeah. Here's what I want you to do next time you're in the water. I want you to, to like do this as hard as you can above the water then sink below it and do it again as fast as you can. Do you go faster or, or softer? Slower. So the water acts as a shock absorber and helps prevent your head from... from getting hurt. In fact, I could probably do that to all of you and it wouldn't hurt you very much. Why is that? Because your head is floating in cerebral spinal fluid.
All right, now, blood supply. Your brain gets one-fifth of all the blood that your heart pumps out at a resting state. Now, what's the only organs that get more than that? Well, besides the lungs, they get 100%. <laughs> Kidneys. Kidneys get approximately 25%. So the brain gets 20% of cardiac output. And there's, there's what we call collateral circulation. What does that mean? It means there's more than one supply. So one of the supplies we get is from the internal carotid, and the other one is from the vertebral arteries. So if you have a problem with the carotid, you can stay alive because you still have the vertebral. And if there's a problem with the vertebral, you can stay alive because they're still carotid. But if you have a lowering of either one of those, what's going to happen? You're not going to die. What would happen if I choke Amy and cut off her? She's going to faint. So her body is going to try and restore that by making her go horizontal. Ah. Now, the internal carotids and the vertebral arteries are going to join in what we call the circle of Willis. Good old Willie. Now, as far as venous drainage goes, there's no parallel there's no parallel to the arterial supply. So it doesn't come out the same way it came back in. The way it's going to come out is you're going to have these venous plexi, which are like joining of these smaller veins into big areas. And then you're going to have what we call a dural sinus, which is just a pocket. And then those will drain into the jugular vein. All right. We're almost done now. Neurotransmitters. How many neurotransmitters did we study last semester? Three and a half. Because we talked about dopamine, but not really. What were the, so what were the three? Acetylcholine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine. So there's only three in the entire peripheral nervous system. How many of you had the entire peripheral nervous system figured out yet? You got it down. You're like, bam, I'm not going to get any of those questions wrong, Dr. Heyman. I'm on top of it. None of you? One? Tiffany? All right. If you, if you can do that on the final, I'll give you an extra five points. If you don't, you lose an extra five points. <laughs> All right. Now, in the central nervous system, there's over 12 definite ones plus 150 other chemicals. We don't really know what they do. So the central nervous system is a lot tougher to understand than the central nervous system. But in general... What in the sorry in the central nervous system we have over 12 that we know of plus 150 other chemicals we don't understand. So the peripheral is a lot simpler than the central. I didn't say that right the first time, huh? Okay. Well, it's a good thing I've got you here keeping me straight. All right. <clears throat> now, what any given neurotransmitter does will depend on the neuron receiving the stimulation. So acetylcholine can do multiple things depending on what neuron is receiving the acetylcholine. Does that make sense? Okay. So <clears throat> it's acetylcholine we use to make muscles contract. 
It's released by both the preganglionic, uh, sympathetic, and parasympathetic systems. So when you have a nerve that comes from your spinal cord and goes down to somewhere else, like let's say your uh, stomach, there's a ganglion, there's a synapse, and acetylcholine is going to be released at that synapse. And then again, at the end, if it's a gland, it's also going to be acetylcholine again. So acetylcholine is multipurpose. Norepinephrine, we already talked about what it does. <clears throat> talked about these. Uh, beep. Okay, aging. Now, aging is an extremely complex pro um, subject when it comes to the nervous system because we don't know how much is of the changes that happen are actual just aging changes versus how much of them are disease changes. For example, Alzheimer's disease. If everyone lives long enough, 140 years old, every single one of us will eventually get Alzheimer's disease. But some of us are going to get it much earlier. So is Alzheimer's disease a normal part of aging or is it a disease that just happens to come along with age? Now, what will happen over, over time is that the brain will decrease in weight and size. So yes, your brain will shrink, even if you don't see a shrink. There'll be an increased adherence of the dura mater, dura mater to the skull. So the dura mater will kind of retract upwards. There'll be a fibrosis of the meninges, which is going to cushion the brain less. The, the sulci will get wider, farther apart. And then the ventricles will become enlarged. So they actually have less brain in the same space. And so over time, we lose brain. <clears throat> now, as far as the neurons themselves, there's a decrease in the number of neurons. It is not consistent with cognitive loss. What does that mean? Yeah, even though you lose the number of brains, you might be able to still think just fine. But you're not as good at making new memories. And sometimes you're calling up older ones. So the implication of this, we don't know. As far as other cellular changes, dendrites will change. Lipofusin deposition. Ooh, basically fatty deposits develop in the brain. Then neurofibrillary tangles. We'll talk about these in senile plaques. These two things are accelerated in Alzheimer's disease. And then finally, neurotransmitters change the way they work. <sighs> That's fun. All right, uh, nervous system tests. First one is x-ray, primarily looking for bony structures. Um, so what you can see here is if there's a bony structure impinging on a nerve, perhaps. Next, we have the CT, and that's going to be a 2D recreation for multiple x-rays. We can look for things like strictures, tumors, hemorrhage in the brain, and it can be done with or without contrast. As far as MRIs go, you know, we can look for, again, soft masses in the brain. MRA would be angioplasty, and what we're going to do is we're going to look to see if there's issues with the carotid arteries is primarily what we're looking for here. We can also look for stroke and TIA with MRAs. And then finally, we have PET scans. What do PET scans measure? Okay, so how much of the brain is metabolically active? 
Yes, we're looking for hot spots and cold spots. A cold spot means a part of your brain that is not metabolically active or as active. Now, how many of you have ever heard that humans only use 10% of their brain? It's not true. We use 100% of our brain all the time. Yes. Yep, it's just a science fiction fiction that we don't use 90% of our brains. We use 100% of our brains all the time. We are not necessarily consciously thinking with 10% of our brain. That might be true, but we're using 10% of our brain the entire time. Plus another zero. 100%. We're using 100% of our brain all the time. Except for you. You're only 10. I only use 10% of my tongue. Okay. Because I can't talk. Wernickies, yes. I've got... Actually, I, I have, I have Broca's. You guys have Wernicke's problem. I have Broca. <laughs> yes. Don't worry about the. All right. Next, we have brain scans. Brain scans are radioactive tests, so nuclear medicine. We can do cerebral angiography where we, we shoot dye into your carotid arteries and see what it lights up in the, in the thing. Myelography is primarily looking for spinal problems. Um, it's an x-ray with subarachnoid dye. Um, you, this is what we used to use in the old days to diagnose um, slip disc or ruptured discs. It's very dangerous because you're injecting dye into the subarachnoid space, but you can tell a lot about what you need from that. Ence echoencephalography is basically uh, ultrasound of your brain. Electroencephalography is called an EEG. What we're going to look for is electrical activity in the brain, and we use it primarily to diagnose seizures. You will need to know that. Evoke potentials, don't worry about it. As far as cerebrospinal fluid analysis, where do we get the cerebrospinal fluid from? From the spine, and what do we call that? Okay, you can call it a spinal tap, but you're not going to hear that in the hospital. You're going to hear lumbar puncture or LP. And you can look for proteins, blood, and organisms. Okay, we're almost done. Beep, we're done. Can our brains feel, okay. The question was, can the brain feel pain? And there's no pain receptors in the brain itself, so no. But around the brain, yes, like in the, like in the, in the skull. 